From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and this week we'll find out if we're any closer to knowing who will be the presidential candidates in November. It's also Budget Week in the UK, and we'll be talking about the politics of austerity. Why are we still stuck with it when America seems to have moved on? Or has America moved on? My special guest is Sean Trendy, election analyst for Real Clear Politics, and he tells me why Americans have become such a mystery to each other. We're increasingly self-segregating as a society here in America, and when you do that, when you just don't encounter people who hold different views than you, but you know they're out there somewhere, they kind of become what the sociologists would call an other. And why things may be about to get a whole lot worse. Trump voters aren't going anywhere. They're going to feel like the election was stolen, especially if Trump loses the nomination. But even if he loses the general election, there will be some rationale for someone stabbing them in the back. I use that purposefully because I think it's an apt description. We'll also be taking soundings from the streets of Manhattan about the outsized influence places like Florida and Ohio seem to have on American presidential politics. Stay with us for that and a whole lot more. After Super Tuesday, we now have the results of what I believe has been christened Mega Tuesday. It was good for Trump. It was excellent for Hillary Clinton. It was very bad for Bernie Sanders. The Democratic race is probably over, not certainly, but probably. There are going to be a lot of very, very disappointed young people out there. I've had contact with some of them, I'm sure you have too, in the last week, who really got their hopes up. And I was being sent emails by people saying, look at the polling. Bernie doesn't just beat Hillary. He beats everybody. He beats Trump. He beats everybody. Aaron, where are these young people going to go? Are they going to sit at home now? Are they sitting this thing out? Sulking. There's going to be a lot of Netflix watching, I think, going on. This is my least scientific opinion I'll ever offer on this program. But I remember when I was a young voter in Minnesota, casting my ballot for Jesse Ventura, the former professional wrestler, because I didn't know any better. I was a very unprincipled young man. However, I think Sanders supporters, much to their credit, are considerably more principled than I was. The problem with being that principled is that you don't view politics through the lens of compromise, which, as a matter of fact, is extended to a lot of America. You view it through a lens of close to ideological purity. And so this will be very disheartening. And knowing that uh, young people don't turn out in droves to vote in the first place, I would be surprised if you saw a big sea change moving support towards Hillary Clinton. The only exception to that would be, again, is if during the general election, the campaign becomes so scary that they're so afraid of a Trump presidency or whoever is the leader of the GOP at that point, that uh, they can be motivated to vote for those reasons. But uh, I would be fairly skeptical about, again, Sanders supporters who are in the young generations shifting their support to Hillary Clinton. Helen, we don't know yet whether it's going to be Clinton versus Trump, but it is looking more and more likely. And then we'll discover whether Aaron is right. Does Trump frighten young people back into the ballot booth or not? Trump is still a very lucky politician. John Kasich won in Ohio, so he stays in the race. It doesn't look like this is going to get down to a two-person contest. It is going to be three people right up to the convention. And that does help Trump. Is it over now? I think I would slightly disagree with the idea that he's lucky in terms of the outcome of the results this week, because I think if he had managed to beat Kasich in Ohio, then he had the possibility of winning a majority at the convention or before getting to the convention. And at that point, it would have been very difficult for the party elites to stop him. I think that they still think if he doesn't reach a majority and he only goes there with a plurality of the delegates that they can stop him. So in that sense, I think that Trump's had only a partial success this week. Finbar, do you think it's over? I mean, th- th- there's division here among the commentators. We're only a few hours out from these results, but one or two people are certainly starting to think that whatever the math looks like politically, Trump is the nominee. I don't think it's over at all. And I think because of the way in which the GOP establishment has been finally waking up and saying that they need to stop him because of the nature of the tone of the debate, it isn't over at all. I, the best view is that we'll get, as Helen has said, to the convention with Trump with a plurality, and it's a brokered convention. Back on the Hillary side, by the way, just going back to what we were saying about young voters and whether they're going to turn out, one of the key things for Hillary now is turning towards the general who's going to be the vice presidential nominee. 
because that person is going to have to shore up the back end of her ticket with a number of constituencies, young voters, the white disaffected voters who are going to Sanders and who possibly go to Trump if Sanders isn't in the race. So there's a very interesting conversation there as to whether or not she can motivate enough of those voters to come back out as well. We don't know what's going to happen, and there are enough people out there speculating about the future, so let's do what we're slightly better at, which is speculate about the past. Maybe we're not better at that either, but let's have a go. There are a couple of analogies that are floating around as people try to make sense of this extraordinary election. One is to compare it to 1980, and certainly some Trump supporters, but also slightly more dispassionate observers, have started to wonder whether we're seeing something similar to what happened then with the nomination of Ronald Reagan, which was that there was a somewhat hysterical reaction on the part of mainstream and particularly liberal thought, not just in America, but in Europe too, that this was the most dangerous man in the world and that the United States was potentially about to elect a lunatic or a cowboy or a failed actor, but someone clearly not qualified to be president. Now, Donald Trump is no Ronald Reagan, Aaron, but do you have any sense that we're seeing an equivalent overreaction here, particularly actually in Europe? where Trump is being branded by German commentators and others, the most dangerous man in the world. I don't think it's an overreaction. And the reason I would say that is because with Trump, again, we've said this in the past, it's very hard to know what you're actually getting because his policy positions have flipped around so much over the years. Even during the campaign, he's retracted some of the things he said or said he's never said some of the things that he said. And so he doesn't have a strong ideological line. He's more about attitude and the attitude seems to be a very aggressive one, regardless of the context or the issue. Now, with Reagan, you arguably had higher stakes because this was still the Cold War. You still had tens of thousands of warheads uh, pointed at one another from both the East and the West. But you did kind of know what you were getting with Reagan. You were getting Goldwater. And so there was a precedent here. And say what you will about, again, the merits of mutually assured destruction. Uh, and this is the second week in a row now I've talked about the hydrogen bomb. But uh, it does give even the most aggressive person pause with Trump potentially leading up the United States as an unchecked unipolar power, to use that term, or unchecked superpower, there isn't probably the same extent of pause that one would have uh, as you would in the 1980s facing red Moscow. Uh, well, Putin's Moscow is a little scary, but it's not as scary, we should remember. Helen, do you have the memories that I have as a child of the late 1970s hearing my parents sounding genuinely not just alarmed but slightly terrified at the prospect of a Reagan presidency for some of the reasons that Aaron described. The Russians had just invaded Afghanistan. The world was a fairly scary place. But there was also this sense that the Americans had gone mad. That was my memory of it. Did you have that? Absolutely. I remember it pretty clearly like that. And I remember the phrase that I seem to hear over and over again. I think I was 13 when Reagan was elected was they've elected a B-movie actor. If it would have been fine if he was an A-movie actor, but he was a B-movie actor and that made it unacceptable. I think, though, that what I learned reasonably quickly as I started to think about American politics for myself was there was, in at least one respect, a terrible overreaction in Europe to the Reagan presidency. And that is, is that as a naive 13-year-old, I thought he was a political neophyte. And yet, actually, that isn't the case. I mean, this was the man who was on his third attempt to win the presidency. He'd been governor of California, the largest state in the union, for two terms. They were not electing somebody who was really out of the mainstream of American politics. Trump, so, so is Trump a neophyte? <laughs> Trump is a political neophyte. I don't think that there's any doubt about that. He's, he, the only political experience he's had before is to run for the nomination of the Reform Party back in 2000. But I think the thing that really makes it different and why he's so terrifying to the party elites, and I don't just mean by that by the Republican Party elites, this is because he's not part of the foreign policy consensus. Whereas Reagan was, he, he might have been, in terms of a number of issues, a slight outlier, but American Cold War policy had already changed and gone more hawkish before Reagan had been elected, indeed after the invasion of Afghanistan, as um, Aaron said. Trump would be something entirely different on the foreign policy front. Finbar, the other historical analogy that's floating around because of some of the violence we're seeing around Trump rallies is that this is 1968 over again, an extremely violent and contentious election year in American politics that culminated in the Democratic Convention in Chicago, which was a kind of mini bloodbath. 
I've just watched a really fascinating film uh, called The Best of Enemies, which was about the William Buckley, Gore Vidal, they weren't really debates, it was more like a cat fight that they had at the two conventions. Apart from anything else, unbelievably camp. That was the thing I was most struck by. But a, a couple of other things came out of that film. One, which was that their violence was a lot more violent, actually, than our violence was. And secondly, there's a character missing from this story, which is the Mayor Daly character in Chicago, who was responsible for a lot of the violence. So whatever you might think about Rahm Emanuel or the current mayor of Chicago, he's not Daly. Do these 68 parallels hold up, or are we kind of searching for something, whereas we're really in new territory here? I don't think the parallels hold up. You were in such a specific circumstance after the assassinations of Martin Luther King um, and Kennedy. Um, Bobby Kennedy, we should remind listeners. Um, The other piece that's very different is that when you look back over the Walker Report, which reviewed all of the incidents around the Democratic National Convention, they used the phrase, this was a police riot. And so the violence we're seeing here is being generated in the supporters, whereas the violence that predominantly occurred at the Democratic National Convention was sparked by the police. There were 25,000 active personnel between full-time military, National Guard and police in Chicago at the time. There were 10,000 protesters. They were ordered in to clear, I think it was Lincoln Park that the um, protesters were many camped in, and they forced them into confrontations. And the Walker Report clearly says that the police were given an indication that they wouldn't be held to account for using force. And so that's not the situation we're in. No. Not yet. Not yet. So the question is, when we get to the convention, especially if it is a brokered convention and tensions are running high, what happens there? Will Trump use fear all the way down the chain from the fear in his foreign policy positions down to fear at the national level, down to fear at the personal level for the delegates to try and drive himself towards a nomination. And that's the concern. Aaron, I, I looked up this morning online who is the mayor of Cleveland, where the Republican convention is going to take place to see if maybe there is a Mayor Daly figure out there. He doesn't look like a Don't quiz mayor me, Daly. I'll fail the question. No, but I can tell you that just from his Wikipedia profile, he looks like a fairly centrist Democrat and not an obvious harbinger of a bloodbath. But it's going to be a challenging convention for the mayor of Cleveland, right? I believe it will. I'm going to go do another anecdote from my youth, not as young as when I voted for Ventura. When I was in my late 20s, I was living in St. Paul, Minnesota in 2008 when the Republican National Convention was there. And one reason why I don't think this convention is going to be like the 68 convention, aside from the lack of a daily, is because United States police forces learned lessons from the 68 uh, convention. When I was in St. Paul in 2008, it was hard to get around. There were checkpoints you didn't want to drive. I was hunkered down at my parents' house, 30 minutes drive away. And the police have basically reacted to the 68 convention and incidents like protests against the WTO in Seattle in such a manner as to try to put a stop to large gatherings of people that could turn into either a civilian riot or a police riot right off the bat. Now, this is also linked to what people criticize uh, American police for, which is kind of the militarization, stepping down on civil rights. Now, instead of having free speech, you have free speech zones at conventions. This obviously also is problematic from the perspective of freedom of association, really any part of the First Amendment of the Constitution. Uh, And normally I would be very negative about these types of police tactics. This election, however, I'm starting to think it might not be such a bad idea to be a little proactive because, again, it's a time of uh, high uncertainty with a candidate in Trump who has not been at all eager to tell his supporters to avoid violence. In fact, he's done most of what he could to uh, support violent acts, including saying he'll pay legal fees for for people who use violence against protesters. So we're, we're in unusual times. Helen, how do you understand the violence that we saw around some of the Trump rallies recently and the way in which it's played out? For instance, I mean, what impact do you think it's having on this race itself? Is it is it affecting how people are voting? I think potentially the most interesting thing that happened over the weekend in this respect was the effect that it had on Sanders as a as a candidate, because Sanders has done really badly in Ohio. If you look at the way he performed in Michigan, Ohio should have been a, a very good state for him. And indeed, if you go back to the 2008 contest, and there are a number of ways in which the Hillary-Bernie contest is demographically at least playing out in the way in which the Obama-Hillary-Clinton 
Costa has played out, except now that Hillary's playing the opposite political part, is is that Hillary Clinton won in Ohio in 2008, and Bernie Sanders should at least have been competitive. And yet, after a weekend in which groups that said that at least that they were Bernie Sanders supporters were organised to disrupt Trump rallies, he has done quite badly, and particularly badly, in Ohio. And I think there is something, and this does go back to 1968, is is that middle America looks at organised protests with a hint of violence to them, and it doesn't like it. I mean, after all, the outcome and the end of everything that happened in 1968 was that middle America elected Richard Nixon as president. Thanks to Helen, Aaron, and Finbar. We'd been planning to run this second season of election for about another month or so until we could be pretty sure who the presidential candidates are going to be. If it turns out that we're heading for a contested convention, I think we're going to have to make some plans to come back. One striking feature of this presidential election season and of American presidential elections past is just how much influence certain states seem to have on the outcome. I can remember back in 2004 listening to an American political scientist tell a British audience that basically all they have to do is keep their eyes on Ohio because Ohio decides the result. Well, Ohio doesn't always decide the result, but here we are again in 2016 and we're talking about what Ohio has decided, both on the Democratic side, it seems to have killed off Sanders' campaign, and on the Republican side, it saved Kasich. Will Coley went onto the streets of New York to ask voters there how they feel about watching other states decide things for them. Honestly, I feel like neither of those states are really, really going to go for Bernie Sanders, so therefore I'm not into them. It it is weird, though, that there's like an imbalance of who has power in states and stuff. Superdelegates suck. It's scary. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. Why is it scary? Look at at the options. It's like... They're two of the worst states anyway, as far as I'm concerned. Florida is like insane. Well, I'm from Ohio, um, and it usually goes Republican, um, which I'm not. <laughs> um, so it's, it's hard. It's tough. I just know that I don't like Trump, and I know a lot of people from those areas might like Trump. And I think if they lived in New York for maybe 20 minutes, they would realize that they shouldn't like Trump. I feel like people move to New York because they want something, they want to work in a particular area. We, we self-select the people who live here. We have extremely educated people and extremely opinionated people. And the news stories I see that come out of Florida, less so Ohio, are, are not encouraging as to how they might feel about uh, where the country's going or not using meth. Are you from New York? Originally I'm from Boston, but we're all, you know, intellectuals and grumpy. Okay, great. Can I ask who you're supporting? Uh, absolutely. I uh, feel the burn. I'm voting Bernie Sanders. I re-registered as a Democrat. I was an independent, so I could vote for him. I live in New Jersey, but uh, New Yorker, New Yorker enough. I think it's a little ridiculous. Um, they don't really reflect what the country looks like. So, yeah, it's just the fact that they're big and they have what more delegates, I think. Yeah, I think it's ridiculous. Period. Well, we have high population in New York, and um, it's just about old politics, why they have such high say in it. But, you know, Obama won Ohio, so I don't see why not not the Democrat can't win that state for this election. Doesn't New York City count as the capital of the world? Why do they get to decide who gets to vote? From what I know, Florida is the retirement state. Ohio, I don't know know much about Ohio. And And us as New Yorkers over here in New York, we have Wall Street. Where all the money, all the money goes to. But again, I don't know much about Ohio. As a New Yorker, I don't have a dog in this fight because we are not a primary state. So, in terms of Hillary versus Bernie, as I'm a registered Democrat, I, I don't care who gets the nomination. I'll vote for who I, whoever the nominee is, come November. I really don't care who gets the nomination. I just want them off my Facebook feed. So where am I going to go in Manhattan to find some Trump supporters? Uh, That's a good question, sir. (laughs) Will Coley in Manhattan. You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. I was joined earlier this week, before we knew the results of Mega Tuesday, 
by Sean Trendy, who's written a fascinating series of articles for Real Clear Politics, exploring the Donald Trump phenomenon and trying to identify where Trump's support comes from, and also some of the deeper cultural and demographic patterns that underpin it. I began by asking him what he thinks is the basic divide at the moment in American politics. I took a couple semesters of British history in college, Tudor and Stuart England, uh, and one of the things that they focused on a lot, especially in Stuart England, was the so-called court-country divide, which caused all kinds of problems in the time period. And I think it is a similar thing we see in American politics today, that in kind of large new economy centers, the economy's been going great and, and people are doing well. In more rural, working class, small cities and towns where the industrial base is largely left, things aren't as good. And, and it's deeper than just economic policy. There's kind of a, a divide on morality with these small town and rural places still holding what we might call traditional values, as opposed to the cosmopolitan areas, which are more, call them citizens of the world or whatever, just, just have a different morality system and increasingly kind of look down their noses at the traditionalist mores. One of the things that you say that certainly rings true to an outsider, but it's also quite surprising, is that the cosmopolitans never encounter the traditionalists. So one of the examples that you give is that a large number of Americans, significant number, do believe in creationism. They believe in the literal truth of the Bible. But the cosmopolitans, not only do they not meet these people regularly, they really never come across them at all. Yeah, I, I'm someone who uh, who goes to church every Sunday, and in my church, even in churches, in my church, I, I would guess that very few people believe the, the literal account of Genesis. And yet, in America, it's a majority of people who believe this. Um, so we're increasingly self-segregating as a society here in America. And when you do that, when you just don't encounter people who hold different views than you, but you know they're out there somewhere, they kind of become what the sociologists would call an other. They're, they're just this kind of unknown people that you don't really care for. You know you're there, but you're suspicious of them, and uh, it, it can cause real problems. And it's also causing real problems for the Republican elite, if we can get back to the election, because as I understand it, they still haven't found a language to communicate with this other. They've just treated them like another. And then along comes Trump, and he has found a way to communicate. So it doesn't sound like he's talking down to them. It sounds like he's speaking their language. And the Republican Party doesn't know what's hit them. Well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, George W. Bush, for all his many, many, many faults, knew how to speak to working class people. And that's part of why he did so well in rural America. But then you look, John McCain, not quite as good. And then Mitt Romney, I mean, not at all. And then you get Jeb Bush. They've lost touch with what's going on with a lot of their base. A lot of the people who work at think tanks, you know, they live in, in D.C., which is the bluest city in the country, uh, blue being most democratic and liberal, went to Ivy League universities. They are within the cosmopolitan bubble. And I can tell you from speaking at a lot of think tanks on both sides, uh, there is a lot of disdain for people who have these viewpoints. So should the Republican elites have seen this coming? Again, something that strikes an outsider looking at this election is just how surprised people seem to have been by the Trump phenomenon. Not only have they called it over when it wasn't over, they didn't see it coming at all. Do, do you think they should have seen it coming? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, this insurgency goes back through Rick Santorum to Mike Huckabee, all the way to Pat Buchanan, uh, this kind of uh, downscale insurgency within the Republican Party. You know, part of it, to be honest, is just that the Republican field is so large, so Trump's 30 to 40 percent of the electorate is enough for him to win a lot of contests. But part of it, yeah, is that uh, I think Republican elites believed that they could run the party as they saw fit for as long as they wanted to. And, you know, th their base or a large portion of their base has just lost faith in them. How much do questions of race cut across this? Because, again, it does look as though a lot is being charged by racial tension, certainly at the Trump rallies, we're seeing that. But more broadly, the rhetoric surrounding this, one of the ways he's tapping into this core of support is by speaking a language which is much more unabashed about racial questions than other politicians. Is it right to see it like that? Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I'm not going to stand here and deny that there isn't a, a healthy or unhealthy strain of racism in Trump's rhetoric and in his support. Some of it is a little bit hard, difficult to tease out, though. For example, you know, the, there's what 
gets commonly called political correctness, which is, you know, the type of language that you can use to discuss certain issues. And there are people who, you know, don't necessarily see themselves as racist, and perhaps they don't have any racial antipathy, yet they talk a certain way that gets them kind of cast out of polite society. And so the the political correctness backlash is is definitely part ugly racism, and but part of it is a self-defense mechanism of people who don't go to upper-crust universities, don't learn or aren't indoctrinated, whichever you prefer, into the quote-unquote proper way of speaking. So it, it's more complex than I think it's, it's often portrayed. But yes, there, there is real ugly racism at work, too. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And does this mean that the people who try and draw analogies between this kind of insurgency on the Republican side and the parallel insurgency that we're seeing on the Democratic side around the support for Bernie Sanders... Are they wrong? These these aren't really parallels at all. One of them does seem to have its roots in what you are calling polite society, and the other one doesn't. So is there an overlap here, or are we talking about two very different kinds of phenomena? Well, well they're, they're different and yet the same, uh, if I can kind of bob and weave a little bit. They, they both spring out of a backlash against party elites. In the Democrats' case, it's the Democratic Leadership Council that kind of took off, took over the Democratic Party in the same way that Tony Blair took over the Labor Party in the 1990s, pulled it towards the center. There were a lot of people who were never comfortable with that. There are a lot of working class folk who feel left behind by the neoliberalism of the Clinton years. And that's a lot of what's driving the Sanders surge is working class people who haven't benefited from this global economy. And then students who, you know, don't remember the 90s were promised good jobs when they graduated and are, you know, left with have inherited a mess. They have no reason to believe in this neoliberal consensus. And it's refreshing for them to have someone who challenges it. So can we speculate a bit now about what might happen going forwards? We don't know who the nominees are going to be, but it certainly looks likely that it's going to be Trump versus Clinton. It's not certain, but it is very likely. Looking broadly at this kind of insurgency, which cuts across both parties, how far can you go on the back of this kind of support? That is, how far can you go towards constructing a winning coalition for a general election? Is there a basis for either side to get beyond the support of the people who are driving the nomination process and construct a campaign for a general election that nonetheless keeps them involved? Well, well, that's the issue is that these are insurgencies within parties. But at the end of the day, if you stake out the hard left or the hard right, it's very hard to win the middle, which in America you very much need to do. I don't think the Democrats, I'm, I'm almost positive the Democrats won't nominate Sanders. Um, in the case of Trump, he is going to drive away a large portion of the Republican Party. Like I said, only 30 to 40 percent of voters in these states are voting for him. And a lot, I mean, a majority of the Republican voters in these states are telling exit pollsters they don't think Trump is an acceptable Republican candidate. So if he's the nominee, he is going to have an incredibly difficult time putting together a winning coalition. Uh, It might even be impossible. Is it bad enough that he will drive these Republicans to vote for Hillary or are they just going to stay at home? Both. There are definitely people who will pull the lever for Hillary Clinton. And if the Democratic nominee weren't Hillary Clinton, there would be more of them, to be perfectly honest. And then some will stay home. And so that has the real effect of hurting the Republicans down ticket. We have a a very tight race for the control of the Senate. And even the United States House of Representatives, which is strongly in Republican hands, would probably be in play in danger of flipping if Trump were the nominee. So if we're then going to speculate a bit further out than just this election, If the result of what you describe is that Hillary Clinton is the next president of the United States, she does in many ways represent all of the things that the insurgents are angry about. She's a Clinton. She's very well connected to Wall Street. She comes out of the 1990s, which has become the bad decade for these people. Isn't American politics going to get more divided on the lines that you've described on this cosmopolitan traditionalist boundary? 
Absolutely. I mean, for one thing, the Democrats have become pretty aggressively cosmopolitan. Not a lot of patience left for traditionalist voters who aren't really any part of their coalition. Um, and, and I think, you know, the Trump voters aren't going anywhere. They're going to feel like the election was stolen, especially if Trump loses the nomination. But even if he loses the general election, there will be some rationale for someone stabbing them in the back. And then, as you said, Hillary Clinton represents a lot of the 90s. I think she's going to have a tough time keeping the Sanders folk in line in her party. Unless we somehow figure out a way to get back to 3%, 4% economic growth, this is probably going to get worse before it gets better. When you use a phrase like stab in the back, that has pretty nasty early 20th century connotations to it. Yeah. How ugly are you saying that this could get? Yeah, I, I, I use that purposefully because I think it's an apt description. I think, you know, we've seen some of the violence starting to erupt at Trump rallies. You know, part of it part of it is that, you know, Trump is 71 years old. He, he's not a young, charismatic leader who's going to be around for a while. But this sentiment is not going anywhere. It's been unlocked, unleashed. And especially we're due for another recession in this country. Uh, you know, eight to 10 years is the business cycle. If we go down again, it, it, it could get extremely ugly. Is there anything that the mainstream of the Republican Party could do looking forward to try and manage this? Is, is there a possibility of a candidate who could soften what Trump is offering without entirely losing touch with the people that Trump is appealing to? I mean, the younger generation of politicians who are currently facing Trump really don't seem up to the task. But do you see a new generation of politicians coming through who could bridge this divide? Is there any way you could be a kind of cosmopolitan traditionalist? You know, I, I, I think so. I, I think the time to do that was probably, you know, four years ago when we first started getting these real Tea Party rumblings. As much as I favor immigration, I'm a borderline open borders person. These are real concerns of voters in, in the so-called Gang of Eight immigration bill was probably not the smartest thing for the Republicans to sign up for if they didn't want to antagonize these voters. So it'll be interesting to see how the Republican Party tries to deal with this. You know, they do have a large swath of governors and senators who will want to try to pick up what's left after this election. So they have a large talent pool. We'll see if someone emerges uh, who can really lead it. Is there any chance that the party could actually split? In the UK, we hear this on the other side of the divide. The Labour Party has been taken over by one of these insurgency movements with the election of Jeremy Corbyn, leaving the more traditionalist, centrist Labour politicians contemplating the choice of splitting the party, which under a first-past-the-post two-party system probably spells years in the wilderness, or sticking with the party they no longer believe in. So, so are the Republicans facing a similar kind of existential dilemma? Well, well, I think both parties are. I mean, Bernie Sanders is winning 85% of the youth vote, which is incredible. Uh, these voters are not going anywhere, and there'll be a majority of the Democratic Party in a decade. So I think we do see a situation where kind of the post-war neoliberal consensus in America is unraveling, and both parties are going to be remade as a result of it. And you probably will see a more populist, traditionalist Republican Party and a more purely cosmopolitan Democratic Party. But that's by no means guaranteed either. Uh, it could be that, you know, in the next election, a, a Corbyn type, uh, a Sanders wins the Democratic Party, not, and then it remakes the Republican Party. But as someone who sort of grew up in the post-war neoliberal world order, um, you know, I, I'm a, someone born in the 70s. I, I think these are these are very dangerous trends. But, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. That's That's my own biases. I will readily admit coming through. Is there any room in this for a genuine independent on this podcast series, we speculated a bit early on, not for long, it has to be said, because it didn't seem very likely, about what might happen if Bloomberg ran as an independent. But we concluded that American history shows that independents really can't win. Is there anything that could break the stranglehold of two-party politics? You know, there are situations where independents could theoretically win. It's just difficult because it's hard to not take disproportionately from one side or the other. And with a pure first-past-the-post system where, you know, anyone who wins a state, even if they only win with 34% of the vote, gets all the electoral college votes from that state, it makes it very hard for an independent to put together an electoral majority. Generally, they will pull from one party or the other and simply enable uh, the opposing party uh, to win. 
To finish, can I ask you about something which you've written about recently, which is the challenge at the moment for politicians to be authentic, when being an authentic politician does mean that you have to compromise and do deals. And one of the things that Trump and Sanders have in common, and I think probably Corbyn in the UK context as well, is that they stand out to people as somehow telling the truth because they're not conventional politicians. If, of course, they were to win power, it's not clear they could retain that authenticity. They would have to compromise. So there's a real challenge at the moment for any politician to both appeal to what people think of as authenticity, which is to be anti-politics, but somehow they also have to be a politician. We have seen in the States with, you know, Jesse Ventura, a professional wrestler who was elected governor of Minnesota in the 90s, and, and he was very unsuccessful as a governor because he couldn't toe that line. And I don't think it's an accident that in the internet era, we are seeing more and more of these kind of straight-talking politicians, be it John McCain or Howard Dean or Barack Obama or Ron Paul or, or Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders. Barack Obama has done a lot of things to try to keep his authentic air. I mean, he, he's he does interviews, non-traditional media between two firms and got interviewed by Glozell Green, danced with Ellen and so forth. The problem is at a certain point, you know, if you win the presidency, you take on the trappings of the presidency and the trappings of power. And it's very hard to be the most powerful man or woman, we will say now, on the planet for four or eight years and, and still successfully be able to pitch yourself as a man or woman of the people. Because T Ted Cruz, someone told me they saw an ad that they thought was attacking Ted Cruz, and it turned out it wasn't, because at the end he said, my name is Ted Cruz and I approve this message. <laughs> but in that ad, he said, I will never do a deal with anyone. So the person who told me this said, well, if he's saying that, how can he be a politician? <laughs> well, you know, Ted Cruz is... is <laughs> For, for whatever else you say about Ted Cruz, he hasn't done a whole lot of deals in Washington. He's, he has not been particularly effective in the Senate uh, because he doesn't do deals. And if he's in the White House, I guess the Congress could be shut down for four <laughs> years, but that, that would not be good for the country either. So a Cruz presidency, if he refuses to do deals, is, is going to be an absolute debacle. The point you make about the internet age is, I think, important because, as you say in your article, one of the things that's driving this is fundraising. And this kind of authenticity does come across really well in an internet age because it's the kind of authenticity that people online value. That's what they're looking for. So it's not really a level playing field anymore. The better funded candidates are often the ones who come from this sort of background. They're not the conventional politicians, or at least they're not pretending to be conventional politicians, <clears throat> because they're appealing to the authenticity that drives revenue on the internet. Yeah. And what I think is, we're seeing, and it's kind of interesting, is that, you know, people talked about the big money donors being an interest group that politicians keyed their message towards. But in an odd way, these small internet donors are becoming an interest group of their own who demand authenticity as their price uh, for donating money. And so you're seeing candidates increasingly play for these voters. And uh, it's reshaping American politics and, and not necessarily in a positive way. So finally, what do you think we are actually looking at here if we take not just this election, but maybe a three election cycle, the last one, this one, whatever happens next time out? Are we looking at a fundamental shift in American politics? None of us can know the future. But when people look back at this period, will they think that some major realignment happened here? And that really, it's not going to be the same after this? As you say, who knows? I mean, the Republican Party could lose and then in 2020 have a strong candidate and, and and win. I mean, if the Democrats can win the popular vote by four points eight years after being on the wrong side of the Civil War, <laughs> then anything can happen. But, uh, you know, the entire world is in a transformation by brought about by globalization, and the Internet plays a big role in it. I mean, we've talked about the information revolution for decades but I think it is finally having the kind of transformative effects that people had predicted. The the precise effects have proved unpredictable. So I, I don't know where this goes, you know. But but we're living in a time that's as chaotic as the Industrial Revolution was. You know, students of British history know how Britain was remade by that, and the politics were remade by that. And I think we're seeing a similar thing with the information age in America and in other countries. Thank you very much to Sean Trendy. To read his work, just visit Real Clear Politics. Now back to our panel and back to the politics of the UK. We are speaking on Budget Day, 
We don't know what George Osborne's going to say, but we do know because he's trailed it in advance. So they, once upon a time, chancellors weren't meant to trail these things in advance. There is going to be a lot of austerity. It is back on the menu. Helen, one question that comes out of this, because this seems to have happened quite a few times. How long can George Osborne keep telling us that we've got to carry on fixing the roof because, as he's going to say, the storm clouds of the global economy are looming? How long can he keep telling us that the time for austerity is not yet over? I think in one sense he can for some time yet because he is right that there are a number of problems that are there rising to the surface in the global economy and it's quite possible that at least one of the major western economies that a recession is coming or at least a period of much slower growth. I think that the problem for him though is is that he isn't really giving a convincing message about austerity because on the one hand he's saying that there needs to be four billion pounds worth of public expenditure cuts somewhere in the welfare uh, area Uh, And yet at the same time, he's got a long list of things in terms of transport infrastructure in particular, Crossrail 2 being the most striking that he wants to go ahead with. And I think this is back to the problem that he had back in 2012, is, is that it's one thing to have an austerity message. He did quite well with that between 2010 and 2012. It's another thing to have a message that is mixed up. In 2012, it became we need to be have austerity, but we're also going to cut the top rate of income tax. And I think that the problem for him right now is that he's not giving a convincing austerity message, even though he might have a point about the dangers ahead on the world economy. Finbar, one of the things that people now, I think, associate with George Osborne is that there is politics behind whatever he does. And I don't think you have to be especially suspicious to believe that one of the things he's doing here is trying to expose the Labour Party. It may be that actually that's relatively easy for him to do. But is there a danger for Osborne, not just that he becomes known as the austerity chancellor, but that he becomes known as a chancellor you can't trust because actually it's politicking, not economics that drives this? I don't actually think so. I think that he's being given a huge free ride because the effect of opposition from Labour has disappeared. There's no strong narrative coming back out of Labour currently. And he's able to do this budget under also the distraction of the EU referendum. So I think there is a lot of danger in the global economy. I think there's a lot in this budget which is going to hurt, but it's not going to get picked up and thrown back at him in a constructive way because Labour all over the map and a lot of people, frankly, are bored with successive austerity budgets when they shouldn't be. And they're distracted by the EU referendum and the fights within the Conservative Party. And when you say successive austerity budgets, it does feel a little bit like budgets come along more often than they used to. Now, it may be because we're all getting older, or it may be because they actually do. We have the autumn statement. It, it, it feels like George Osborne is quite regularly getting up and telling us these things. It doesn't have the event quality that it used to have. I don't want to carry on reminiscing about our childhoods, but <laughs> budget day, like Grand National Day and other things, used to be an event in the calendar. It's now just routine. It's partly routine, and that's partly intentional because part of the news is bad and they don't want it to be a big hoo-ha. The other part of it is that when you set up structures like the Officer Budget Responsibility, the OPR, and you have the IFS on the outside doing constant commentary and projections, that gives you the feeling that there are constant budget statements or statements like the budget as well. So it's not just that we have the autumn statement and we have the main budget as well, is that there's a, a lot more reportage, commentary, and pieces coming out that look like budget and projection statements as well. Um, the IMF, the OECD, other bodies have all pitched in as well. And so we get a ton of forward projections on growth for the UK economy. And you can feel kind of deluged by it. One thing that is striking is the extent to which British politics, the language of austerity still dominates. I don't think that's true in the American case. Bernie Sanders is sometimes known as an anti-austerity candidate. But the context is different, not least because this is the Obama presidency that America is voting at the end of, not of a conservative or Republican presidency. And the Obama recovery has been somewhat different from the UK recovery. Is is Britain an outlier? I mean, of course, there are other countries like Greece that are still very much suffering under austerity politics. But is Britain an outlier in, our, in the sense to which we still are using this kind of language? 
Yes and no. Uh, in the United States, the Republican Party still very much uses the language of austerity. They use the metaphor of the household, right? When your household is hemorrhaging cash, right? You tighten your belts. You buy the cheaper toilet paper, the uh, non-name brand cereal or whatever. That hadn't been the dominant narrative, however, in the country as a whole from 2008 forward because Obama won the presidency and proceeded to do things like bail out General Motors and Detroit, engage in quantitative easing, basically try to boost consumer demand rather than restrict government budgets. Now, you did have certainly opposition party resistance uh, from the GOP to that, and you heard the uh, austerity message in response, and also this got specially targeted at Obamacare, but you had much more of a mixed message, whereas Britain's an outlier because it had conservative government in power from 2010 forward. And this is still very much, uh, despite dissimilarities between the conservative parties in the U.S. and Britain, I think the legacy of Reagan-Thatcher, this is still very much an ideological fixture amongst conservatives. And given that uh, England as a whole, I would say, is in a way more conservatively minded than uh, the U.S. as a whole amongst the voters, this is a message that was also kind of more preset to resonate. Helen, the, the language, the rhetoric of austerity between the British government and American Republicans translates. But do the policies translate? I mean, Osborne is not actually a US Republican style chancellor, is he? Not least because we have the mixed economy too. We have quantitative easing, we have attempts to boost consumer demand. Is it actually real austerity? Or is this just rhetoric? I think making the comparisons is is pretty difficult, actually, and not least because of where Britain started in 2010, which was to have the highest budget deficit, not just in the G7, but in the in the G20. So if you looked at the project, if you like, of deficit reduction, it was going to be a bigger project in Britain than anywhere else, including at that point um, than um, Greece. I think, though, what has happened is is that the Conservative government here, particularly since it won its majority um, last May, has continued on investing in austerity rhetoric. I'm not absolutely at all convinced that it's reflected in policy. I go back to the point that I'd made earlier that actually George Osborne is proposing spending quite a bit of money. It's a question of what he's going to spend it on. And so in that sense, I think that he's got a, a clearer sense of wanting to engage in reducing the size of the welfare state for its own sake than some of his um, counterparts have. And I think it plays out differently than the entitlement reform agenda does amongst Republicans in the United States. And it's also, I think, in this respect, striking that the Republican primary is being um, dominated by a man who has no interest whatsoever in entitlement reform. Yeah, Donald Trump is not the austerity candidate. I think we can all agree on that. Finbar, you mentioned the fact that this is happening under the shadow of the EU referendum. I read something this morning by someone drawing a comparison with Dennis Healy's budget in 1975, which also happened a couple of months before the European referendum then, and apparently he didn't mention it, but it was partly because he was they were fairly confident about the outcome. There's less confidence this time round, and George Osborne in particular, his political career hangs in the balance in many respects. If that referendum is lost, Osborne's chances of being Prime Minister are probably close to zero. Is this budget in any sense being shaped by a need to set a narrative for the next couple of months that gives people a feeling of confidence or assurance as they go into that referendum? I mean, is he going to temper what he's doing because of a fear that any kind of backlash could redound on the government and therefore on the Remain side? I think he's trapped a little bit because of the fiscal rules that he set for himself. And he's about to break both of those fiscal rules. And so there is some uh, narrowing of the space in which you can operate. I don't get a sense that he's going to temper specifically because of the referendum. What I do feel, though, again, going back to my earlier comment, is that the budget is almost a sideshow and partly ignored at the moment because of the referendum and everything else that's been happening. I could be completely wrong, but in the box, there may be a lot of pain that he can get out of the way under the shadow of some of the news cycle for the referendum and also early in the parliament. Because, as you say, if he has aspirations to step into number 10, he doesn't want to be doing these kinds of budgets as we're coming up to the next election. Aaron, a final question for you. We've been talking a lot about your country's election and occasionally talking about it from a sort of Martian perspective. What are these people doing? Why do they have this kind of process? Does it make sense? You look at our budget day, Finbar was there talking about his holding up his red box and so on. 
There's a lot of theater around it. Uh, there's nothing equivalent in American politics. The Secretary of the Treasury doesn't perform this kind of role, not least because a parliamentary and a presidential system are entirely different. Does it look absurd to you? How, what do you think when you see a man standing with a red briefcase outside a house in London, which looks, contains the secrets of the economy? I think it looks much less odd than a man standing in town square holding up a groundhog, and if the groundhog sees its shadow, then there's uh, six more weeks of winter. But that left. made a better film. But it did make a fantastic Bill Murray film, which I urge all our listeners to go out and see if you haven't seen Groundhog Day. No, um, it is kind of odd. Yeah, no, this is not something that I grew up with. You know, even having any kind of idea that there was somebody like the Secretary of the Treasury in the United States. I eventually got cognizance of that in my teen years. Not that I cared very much. But I always wonder what's in that red briefcase exactly. Is it is it state secrets? Is it, you know, chicken bones that you throw on the floor to forecast uh, the future of, of the economy? Is it granola bars in case Osborne gets hungry, his blood sugar gets low? I, I don't know. Um, but I enjoy it. And that might reflect a little bit of my British heritage on my, my mother's side. I, my great-great-grandfather came over from Scotland so because he wanted to mine coal in uh, Pennsylvania instead of uh, Middle England, I think. And so if it's genetically inherited, then th that explains my fascination. And Helen, finally, the other thing that one often hears from American uh, observers of British politics is they like the theatre. The theatre today is going to be Jeremy Corbyn has to respond to the budget without having been briefed in advance because the leader of the opposition never knows what's going to be in the budget. He, I think it's fair to say he's been struggling in the Commons anyway. Finbar said there's nothing coming back from the other side, but is the theatre of this also dead? I, I have to say I'm not looking forward to watching, I'm not even sure I will watch Corbyn's response because it's going to be a little embarrassing. I think from the point of view of the Labour Party, the theatre of this is going to be pretty hopeless. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn is simply not a good parliamentary performer at the best of times. He's also not very good at understanding the economic brief. And you put these two things together and having to do it with very little notice and simply think on his feet and perform, it's very difficult to see how this turns out other than very badly. But politics is an expectations game. And so given what we've just heard, maybe he will outperform expectations. We may come back to this next week and we may not. Thank you to Helen, Aaron and Finbar, to our special guest, Sean Trendy, and to our production team of Catherine Carr, Barry Colfer and Lizzie Presser. Next week, our special guest is the former Today programme presenter, Jim Nocti, who is a long-standing observer of American primary campaigns and has been covering this one for the BBC. He will be bringing us his tales from the campaign trail and he'll tell us if this is the wildest one he's seen yet. Do please join us then and do visit our website at Cambridge Politics Podcast for some blog posts, extra clips and much more besides. My name is David Runciman and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast election. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.